The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I'd like you to take your Bibles, please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. And we return to this passage once again today, and uh, we're discussing Jesus' treatment of the hypocritical religious leaders that had ruined life and faith in Israel. Teaching the Word of God is an awesome responsibility, very awesome responsibility. And those that teach, that preach to other people, had better be sure that they're telling them the truth And they need to make sure that their own lives reflect the truths that they tell. One thing that we don't want to be guilty of is trifling with the souls of men and women because people are going to spend eternity in one of two places according to the belief of what they hear. And there are many preachers that are happy to step into pulpits today and say things that aren't the Word of God, teach about anything that they want to teach, And those people are going to give an account to God when they give people a false gospel. Well, Jesus and the New Testament writers warn us about this. And he says that there will be false teachers everywhere. The apostles told us that in the epistles. And the apostle Peter said that these false teachers will bring in damnable heresies. And in this passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 23... It's a reflection of that charge that's made that there will be these false teachers and Jesus is speaking to false teachers and he told them what will be the outcome of their false teachings and that is their converts are made the children of hell. Now since we're warned about that and we're warned about it repeatedly throughout the scriptures then we could expect that this is going to be a prevalent problem, and we can expect that among the many churches that are started and the many radio and TV ministries that there are, that among those there would be very many of them that do not teach the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we have to watch out for that. Uh, you, You turn on your television, you turn on the Trinity Broadcasting Network, and the schedule is filled with religious hucksters. I was speaking to a young man about salvation just the other day and in the course of our conversation I told him that I am a Baptist and I said that I'm a Baptist for a reason and that is because I believe that we're teaching the very same truths that Christ and the Apostles taught in the New Testament. There was a person who told me just the other day that a pastor said to him well all the different denominations are just window dressing that all of us are Christians and it doesn't really matter which one you choose. Well, I beg to differ with that assessment. Uh, There's many, many different churches and we're Baptists, we're teaching one thing and people are teaching other things and there aren't a dozen different truths. There's only one truth. And the way that you determine what that truth is, is you take the Word of God and you evaluate what's said by God's Word. And when that person adds or takes away from what God said, then you know the person isn't telling the truth. Now, in these verses, Jesus made an evaluation of religious leaders and showed that they were not telling the truth. And Jesus was not going to let them get off with their hypocrisy. 
And so we look at this passage and we see where Jesus pronounced woes against the religious leaders. And what those were were judgments on the things that they did and they taught. And the results of those false teachings were never benign, as we've said. These things matter. And very clear distinctions must be made between truth and error. And we notice what Jesus did here was not to speak behind these leaders' backs, but he came to them and he addressed them personally, he turned to them directly, and it's no mystery why after what he said, they were more determined than ever to kill him. And that just tells us that it doesn't make any difference how people feel about it. They might even want to kill you, but still the truth has to be told. And if that truth gets you in hot water, then so be it. One pastor said, I'm always in hot water. He said, it keeps me clean. And I, I think that we can identify with that. Now, the problem with the world is that they don't really dislike you because of your personality. I mean, I've met many Christians are the nicest people that you'd ever want to meet. They don't dislike us because of our personalities. They dislike us because of the truth that we tell. People do not like the truth. Not until God changes their heart do they really want to hear the truth. But we have to tell them the truth. Now, that being said, we do need to get into our text today. There are eight woes that are spoken here by Jesus, and we've discussed four of those. And let me just list them for you again. We don't have time to go into them individually. But first, we had the woe of shutting up salvation. And that was in verse number 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Then there was the woe of religion for riches. That's in verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. And then the woe of making corrupt converts. Verse 15, woe unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. And then fourthly, what we ended last week on was this woe of pardoning prevarication. And that's found in verses 16 through 22. The Pharisees lied, and they excused their lies by making a distinction in oaths. They said some are binding oaths, and some are non-binding oaths. But Jesus taught that our word is our bond, that we are always to tell the truth. And so Christians really should never have to swear an oath. So those are the first four woes. We're halfway through, and... All of those are very important because they're not just ancient things that we're talking about here. These, are, these woes reflect problems that we find in the religious world today. And so if you didn't hear the previous messages, then I would encourage you to catch up through our website or get a copy of one of the CDs from our men in the back. Now today we're going to, well, mostly finish the passage. I do have one more message, but we're going to take a little bit of a different approach in that message. So uh, we should be able to work in, though, these last four warnings in a reasonable period of time. So let's turn our attention to the fifth woe, and that starts at verse number 23. And we notice what Jesus says. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, 
and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, these ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides would strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, fifthly, I've named this woe the woe of petty priorities. This is the practice of nitpicking on little issues and yet completely missing the major things that will make a difference to your soul. Now, it is possible that you can focus on so much on the little issues that you never really have time to take care of the big things, the big problems that are in your life. It's like missing the forest for the trees. Now, it's plainly evident that you and I are not going to agree on everything. We're just not going to agree on everything. But the little issues that might separate us are not things that ought to ruin the fellowship that's between us. Now, I've always said that if we agree on everything, then one of us is not thinking. And so we do need to, we do need to reason things out, but we may not agree on everything. We're not going to sing the same tune all of the time. There are little issues that can separate us, and many times those issues are just preferential things things that we've decided that we want to believe or we want to do that really aren't supported by the scripture and sometimes we can take those little issues and they overcloud or or they cover up the big things then in our lives that are really the important things that we need to take care of now jesus had a way of illustrating this and it culminates in a saying that has made its way into our common everyday language and we'll talk about that a little bit later but the way he gets to this point is he tells the scribes and the Pharisees that they were hypocrites because they were so nitpicky in the way that they paid their tithes. Now, I want you to hear me up front here that there is nothing wrong with paying your tithes. And we notice that whenever Jesus speaks of the tithe in the New Testament, that he always supports it. The tithe means 10%, and since the earliest of times people knew that 10% of what they earned belonged to God. It was supposed to go to him. So tithing was commanded by God. And tithing was even commanded before God gave the Moses or gave the, the law to Moses. Abraham paid tithes long before Moses ever came on the scene. 400 years, in fact, before Moses came. And he paid those tithes to Melchizedek, who was the priest of God. And Melchizedek was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when Moses was given the law, tithing was incorporated into the law as a means of support for the Levites and the priests who served God at the tabernacle and at the temple. Now, you remember that the Levites had no inheritance in the land of Canaan. They were given certain cities that were scattered throughout Israel. And they weren't given a lot of land to go along with that. Basically, what they had was a little band that surrounded those cities to grow whatever crops that they could, and maybe if they had a few animals. But they didn't have the farms and the huge wheat fields and all of those things that other Israelites had. Instead, it was their job to serve God at the tabernacle and then later at the temple. And so what God did was to devise a means of support for these Levites who carried out his work, and that means of support was the tithe. Now, God commanded Israel to support them. That was done through the tithe. And I'll add to that that there was no family in Israel that was accepted 
from paying their tithes. Every household without exception was supposed to give the tithe. Well, when we come to the New Testament, that doesn't change. We don't have priests at the temple any longer, but we do have ministers of the gospel. We do have men that serve the Lord in the church. We have missionaries that serve. And the way that these men are to be supported is through the tithes and the offerings of the people. Now, this is what the New Testament says about the support of ministers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the apostle Paul wrote, Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now let me quote to you from W.A. Criswell who helps to clarify this passage. He says, The Lord Jesus Christ directed that ministers of the gospel should receive compensation for their services. Paul devotes an extended paragraph to the argument that ministers of the gospel should receive compensation in terms of material things, by which he means money, possessions, and other benefits. He declares that this is an axiom of the law. The matter is illustrated by the Levitical priesthood who partake of the offerings of the altar. Now, to put that very simply to you, tithing is still commanded... And every person who is a part of the church should participate in that. And nobody should begrudge the ties, the, uh, the payment, rather, of the pastor of his salary. Uh, all the work that goes on in the church and missions and uh, in preaching the gospel and funds that are needed to run the physical plan of the church, all of that comes out of the tithes and offerings of the people. Now, why am I telling you this? I need more money. No, that's not actually why I'm telling you this. I'm just pointing out here what the Scriptures have to say about it. So we can't say that when Jesus talked about the tithe here and he complained about the way the Pharisees and the scribes paid their tithes that there was something wrong with it. Well, there was nothing wrong with that at all. Now, in the bulletin each week, you'll see that we have an accounting of tithes and offerings. And I'll tell you something, that that number is set low. And the reason that it is is because there are many of God's people who do not give a tithe. There are many of God's people who don't bring an offering. And many times the work of the Lord gets strained and has to suffer because of that. Well, going on here, the Pharisees did believe in keeping the law, and they were excellent tithers, and they had a system that made sure that they tithed everything. No matter how insignificant that it was, they thought that they needed to tithe it because they, were, they had the wrong idea of it. They thought that tithing would make them closer to God. And so naturally, they want to tithe everything. The more they tithe, the more things that they consider in the tithe, then the closer they will be to God. So Jesus speaks here of anise and or mint and anise and cumin. And what those were, were little bitty spices that a housewife might grow in her windowsill or she might grow in a little pot that was in her backyard and these little spices produced tiny little seeds. And the Pharisees and the scribes would make sure that they went out there and they counted every one of those little bitty seeds and then they would make sure that they took one-tenth of them to the temple and they tithed of those tiny seeds. Now, I, I do wish that people today were as meticulous in their tithing. Instead, we find that people 
are more interested in finding out how not to tithe than what to exclude from the tithe rather than making sure they don't leave everything out. And so you, you have questions that are asked like this, and people are very concerned about these kinds of things. Do I tithe on my gross or do I tithe on my net? And the real interest in those things is I might give too much if I tithe on the gross, so do I tithe on my net? Would that be acceptable? Well, I think we're kind of nitpicking here and we're missing the whole point here about giving our hearts to God and tithing what we should tithe and, and, and counting that as a great privilege to be able to give to our God. So giving is not a problem here. And, and, and Christ is not criticizing them for their giving. They ought to be careful to give their tithes. Giving is not their problem. The problem is they're worried about these little bitty tiny seeds and they cared nothing at all to make sure that they were right with God in their heart. They didn't care to be sure that they were doing what God expected of them in their relationship with others. They were great on all the nitpicking little issues, but how were they on the big things that really counted? Well, we have an answer to that in this passage. If you go back up to verse 14, it says in the verse, they devoured widows' houses. In verse 13, it says they didn't preach faith. They were keepers of the law. They're not preachers of grace. And so they had omitted the weightier matters of the law, which are judgment and mercy and faith. And those very things are the core elements of the gospel of Christ. And this is what God wants us to do every day with our lives. He wants us to treat others well. He wants us to have discerning hearts. He wants us to be merciful and kind to others. Devour widows' houses? Well, that's hardly what God would expect of his people. The scripture says we are to be kind to one another, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. And so what God wants us to do is to live the faith of the gospel that we proclaim. The just shall live by faith. The faith of the gospel is what motivates us and causes us to be the people that we ought to be. Now, those are big things, aren't they? And they were no good when it came to dealing with these real consequential matters. Should you tithe? Yes, absolutely, you should tithe. But you don't want to be so wrapped up in how good you are at giving your tithes that you forget how to deal with your brother and how to live a real Christian life. And you ought never to think that what you give to God in your tithes and offerings are going to substitute for an unholy life. Now, what does God say that he requires of you? Micah 6.8 gives us an answer. He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what the Lord doth require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Now, there is Old Testament law that the Pharisees had completely overlooked. They're busy counting out little seeds they thought that made them holy, but Jesus came right back at them. He threw the law at them and said, well, what about judgment? And what about mercy? What about faith? Doesn't the law say to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? They had no understanding of that at all. Now, now let me just mention how this applies to teachers of false doctrine. There are many teachers of false doctrine that want to concentrate and nitpick on things that really aren't very important issues, and the Bible says they're not important issues. For instance, you have those that are in the charismatic movement, 
And they spend all of their time dealing with spiritual gifts. And they want to speak in tongues. And they want to have this tangible, visible evidence of the movement of the Spirit. And they think that that's what shows how holy that they are and how in touch with God that they are. And so some of them will go so far as to say that speaking in tongues is a necessary thing. That, that's the evidence that you have salvation. And I've heard some of these preachers in their Holy Ghost meetings, I've heard what they preach and I notice that the Holy Spirit gets all the attention. They're concerned about spiritual gifts and practically nothing, practically nothing is said about salvation in Jesus Christ. Nothing is ever said about Christ being exalted. It's always seeking and trying to get this experience with tongues. Well, if you study the New Testament, you would find that the Apostle Paul said that speaking in tongues is a very insignificant thing. In fact, he said that comes last in the list of spiritual gifts. And so what people are dealing with is the inconsequential, and they call that salvation, and they ignore Christ, and they ignore justification by faith, which is the great cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith, and those things are never expounded or explained. And so what they're trying to do is to obtain something that the Bible teaches is not even for Christians today, and if it was for us today, it would be counting out little seeds compared to the doctrine of justification by faith. But that's what we expect from false teachers. They don't have any capacity to deal with the weightier matters of Scripture. They're too busy playing Holy Ghost hokey pokey. And did you know that that is a real thing? Check that out on YouTube sometime. I don't encourage you to be YouTubers, but you can check that out. There is a Holy Ghost hokey pokey. They play Holy Ghost hokey pokey and, and you can watch them on YouTube and you can see them get down on their knees and bark like dogs and crawl around on the floor and jabber all kinds of unintelligible nonsense and they do those kinds of things while people are on their way to hell. And so I ask you, which is the most important? That's what Jesus is talking about. They have no capacity for weighty spiritual matters. So how does that conclude? Well, he concludes with a saying that all of us know. He says, they strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, I think it's interesting how that saying got started. The gnat is considered to be the smallest of unclean animals that were in Israel, the smallest of all the creatures that God said they couldn't eat. And remember, there were dietary laws, restrictions among the Jews, things they could eat and things they could not eat. And they were never to eat what God said was unclean. So the gnat was the smallest of the unclean animals. But on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, you have the camel. The camel is also an unclean animal, and that is the largest of the unclean animals that lived in Israel. So we have the extremes here, the gnat and the camel. Now most of us would think it's not too good to eat a gnat. I mean, we just don't want to eat gnats because... Most of us, maybe some of you are this way, but most of us don't eat insects. Some of you may eat insects. Some of us are disgusted at insects. But the Jews didn't stop or didn't refrain from eating gnats because they were disgusted with insects. It was because the gnat was unclean and they were not going to eat what was unclean. And so here's what would happen. You know a gnat, little gnat, you can't even see a gnat. 
you know, the background, the lighting has to be just right for you to even, even see a gnat. So the Israelites would know if there were gnats flying around. It was very common to get gnats in their drinks, and they wouldn't even know it. So this is what they would do. They would drink, and as they did, they would strain their drinks through their teeth. And then when they had finished drinking, they would pick the gnats out of their teeth so they wouldn't swallow them. Now, get the contrast. Get the contrast. The gnat is the smallest unclean animal. The camel is the largest unclean animal. And Jesus said, you spend all day long straining those little bitty gnats that you're afraid to ingest. And while you're doing that, along comes a camel and you swallow him whole. And what he's illustrating here is a mix-up of priorities. Now, there are lots of people that are like this. In fact, most of the people of the world are like this. Most people are very mixed up about priorities. For instance, you get very worried about uh, how long you're going to live, whether you're going to live 70 years or so. You're worried about whether you're going to have retirement. You worry about whether you're going to live in a nice house. Most people are concerned about things like that, but they're totally unconcerned about eternity. If they're going to live 70 years on this earth, maybe, what is that compared to eternity? The priorities are mixed up. If we're not thinking about eternity out there somewhere is where we're going to go. So why are we so worried about these things? We need to take care of our soul, don't we? We need, we need to take care of where we spend eternity. And all of you will sit here and you'll agree with me and you'll shake your head. Absolutely, we do need to be concerned about the major things. Let's be concerned about eternity. Thank you. And then you have church members that are still very mixed up about priorities. Oh, they'll be very concerned about whether their kids get to soccer on Sunday, get to soccer practice, get to the soccer game, get to the other kinds of games that kids play or adults play, and they don't bring them to Sunday school where they can hear the Word of God. They don't bring them to church where the gospel is being preached. They don't bring them to the place where they can hear a message. They can save their souls from eternity in hell. Is that a mix-up in priorities? Well, I think it most definitely is. And many Christians are involved with this. They just don't know what's most important. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Woe to those who have this mix-up, this is total confusion about their priorities. Now, in verse number 25, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Now, this one is very simple for you. It comes right out of the text. This is the woe of extortion and excess. And what it has to do with is the way that the Pharisees gained their means of living. Now, here he mentions cleaning cups and platters, the things that they ate and drank from, and that has to do with ceremonial washings. They wanted to make sure that they were undefiled. And so the Pharisees would clean themselves just like you and I do. You'd wash the outside of the body by taking a bath. But they also thought that what they needed to do was to clean the inside, and so they would clean 
the cups and the platters, the eating utensils that they ate off of to be sure that the inside, what they ingested, was clean as well. And that wasn't necessarily a sanitary sanitary thing. That's not what they're most concerned about, although that is an element of it. It's not the sanitary condition, but it's this whole thing again of what is defiling and undefiling. And so they washed the cups and the platters to make sure that they were clean. So what they put in them, uh, whatever they ingested, would be clean also. Now, while they were doing that, the food that they put on the plate had been obtained by stealing. Now, isn't that what verse 14 said? They devour widows' houses, and they cheated and they lied to gain their living by false pretenses. And then when you claim that you're holy and you do those things, that makes you a hypocrite. Well, how do you suppose that would apply to us? Well, it's a very, very common thing in the church. People come to church, they make sure they show up, and they put a little bit of money into the plate. They support the benevolent cause, and they think because of that that they're really good Christians. I mean, they're actually Sunday morning Christians, and they do the things they do here, and as soon as they leave the door, they're a completely different person. The whole mentality changes. Businessmen will put in their money, but it didn't make any difference at all that they cheated on their taxes to help make a little bit more money. A few weeks ago, uh, Brother Gary sent me a an article about a guy who built the largest church in the world that's in Seoul, South Korea. And this pastor was, was arrested for embezzling $12 million from the church. I can't even imagine having $12 million in the church. Uh, I wish we did. In our church in Kentucky, we had a Sunday school teacher and a choir member that embezzled thousands of dollars from her employer. Brother Dalton was telling me about two ladies that he worked with that said that they were Christians, but they had the filthiest mouths of anybody that he worked with. Now, the Pharisees had all of these ill-gotten gains to buy their food, and they put them on the platter that they were so, so concerned about being clean, precisely cleaned according to all their kosher laws. And the food that they put in had been obtained by extortion and excess, and that didn't bother them at all. They put it on a plate that was clean, that was kosher, and if they hadn't done that, then they would be all bent out of shape. And what Jesus said is, you've got to deal with the sin first. Deal, Deal with the sin of the way that you got that first. Take care of the sin that you've committed with your daily living, and then when you've done that, what you... When you've done what's in the heart and corrected that, then the outside is going to take care of itself. And this is why he says, cleanse first that was within the cup and platter, that the outside may be clean also. And so the part that you need to learn from this is not to live like the devil every day of the week and then put on your halo and come to church and then put your check in the plate and think that you've done what God wants you to do. No, God sees through that hypocrisy. Now, we go on to verse number 27, and and this one may be more familiar to you than the rest. Jesus says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward. Everybody knows what a sepulcher is? We're talking about a grave here. You're you're like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so... Ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, 
but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Now this is the woe of hypocritical hearts. Now Jesus had just talked about what's on the inside and that would naturally lead to further development of this thought that we must have a heart for God. And in the illustration of this point, he gets very graphic and uh, there, there was nobody that's able to get to the point like Jesus does. And what he gives here is a very appropriate example for the timing that this was spoken. And that's because the Jews were getting ready for Passover. And that's the biggest celebration of the Jewish calendar. And so people were coming from all over the known world at that time. Jews from all over the known world would come to Jerusalem for Passover. Now, there are great distances then that are traveling, a lot of time that's involved. And it was very important for the people to be spiritually ready in order to celebrate Passover. And so what they would do is they would prepare themselves from keeping away from anything that would defile them. Well, in the example that Jesus uses here, he goes back to an Old Testament law in which the law says that a a, a person cannot touch a grave or touch a dead body. If they did, that would make them defiled. Well, there was a lot of symbolism that goes into all the Old Testament ceremonies. And this particular one, you couldn't just touch a dead body and in just a few minutes go over and wash yourself or do ceremonial cleansings, whatever you needed to do, and, and then in just a few moments that would be taken care of. No, no, this particular type of cleansing was a seven-day cleansing. In other words, if you were to come in contact with a tomb, a grave, dead body, and you did that on Sunday, today, you wouldn't be fit to actually come back into the congregation of the people and worship God for seven days. And so it would be next Sunday before you could actually come into the congregation of the people. So let's suppose that you had traveled a great distance to come for Passover, and you'd spent all this time trying to get there for Passover, and you're just in sight of Jerusalem, and you stumble upon a grave site. Well, what are you going to do? Well, after traveling all that distance, you would be defiled, and you would miss the Passover observance. Well, is that a problem? I mean, I mean are, we, are we dealing something here with just hyperbole? These things don't happen? Well, in fact, it was quite common for things like this to happen. Let me give you an example of that. Now, show us a picture here, uh, Eric. This is the view that you get uh, from Mount of Olives as you're looking down, just looking down uh, the mountain towards Jerusalem. You see this huge cemetery that's there. Well, there's a very narrow path. If you'd show us the next one, there's a very narrow path that goes by this cemetery. Now, let me stop for just a minute. You see all the rocks that are on top of the graves there? Nobody really knows for sure why that they do that. It was an ancient Jewish custom. And so there's several explanations for why they put rocks on the graves. And I think probably the best one is they're cheaper than flowers. So that might have been the reason that they did it. But in, in Israel, this is what they do. They put rocks on top of the graves. Well, there's this very narrow path that goes by this grave. As you walk these, this graveyard, as their cemetery, as you walk down the Mount of Olives. Now, there would be... Well, let's suppose that there are thousands of people that are walking on this same path, and, and that would have been very common during Passover time because there were thousands of people that came from all over. So you're walking down this very narrow path, and in the jostling and pushing and shoving of the crowd, you get pushed over too far to the side, and you touch or step on one of those tombs. 
Now, this is pretty fancy here, these type of tombs that are built here, but you have graves that are all over the place that, that don't stand out like this. And so what if you get pushed too far over into the cemetery and you touch one of those graves? Now, Jesus used this example. And what they would do during that time in order to make the graves more apparent is they would whitewash the tombs. They would just paint the tombs and so they'd be more easily recognizable. So Jesus takes that example and he says, now when these, these tombs are all cleaned up, they look really nice. And I'm sure you've been to cemeteries that look really nice. There's some that I might like to spend a little bit more time there because they have all kinds of nice flowers and the lawns are manicured and if you didn't know better, you'd think you were at a country club. But you don't want to forget what lies beneath the ground. And there's none of us that's going to go start digging in the ground to see if what's underneath is as pretty as what's on top because we know the answer to that question. Jesus said, now you Pharisees, you look great. You look great with all of your fancy clothes and your long tassels and your rings and your Gucci sandals. You look really great in all that stuff. But he says, inside, you're like graves. Inside, you're like rotting flesh and dead men's bones. Now, the prophet Isaiah had another way of saying that, that um, points out the same kind of religious hypocrisy. He said in Isaiah 1 verse 6, From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified, with ointment. And Isaiah is addressing the same kind of people that had an outward pretense of religion, but there was nothing there at all. Now, these aren't pretty pictures, but this is the picture that Jesus gives of the religious hypocrite. And you know what Jesus is trying to get across here? Now, uh, in my own thinking, I think that what he might be saying here, there's a lot of applications that can be made, but I think that one of the things he may be saying is you're avoiding all these graves to keep from being unclean, Maybe he's saying, don't touch a Pharisee either. Don't touch one of them because they look so good on the outside, but inside their heart is worse than you can imagine. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the heart. A lot to say about the heart. You can look really good, really nice on the outside. You can be pious. You can be outwardly sanctified. What you wear, you know, we've talked about that a few weeks ago. What you wear, people think, makes us sanctified. And you can wear all the right stuff and look really good, but inside your heart can be as black as coal. External religion is never going to cut it with God. So when you see priests in their holy vestments and they come out with all the regalia and they say the Mass, well, that doesn't mean very much when you know that their system has done its best to cover up pedophiles, pedophilic priests. doesn't mean very much when the, the priest holds up the wine and consecrates the wine and supposedly turns it into the blood of Jesus Christ when you know that that same priest the night before has been out on a bender. That doesn't count for so much, does it? And it doesn't when you realize the whole system is just rife with corruption. And the same thing goes on with evangelical churches. Let's just spread the thing around here. Let's just don't pick on Roman Catholics. Let's pick on those who say that they are evangelicals. 
who build their empires and they wear their fancy clothes and they have their big buildings and they gain all of that stuff by cheating people. Inside they are full of dead men's bones. And the whole point of that is that your heart can be like that too. You can deal with all the externals and you can look really nice on the outside, but you know what your thoughts are. And you know what you've been doing all week. And get this, so does God. God knows exactly what your heart is like. He knows the thoughts of your heart. Didn't Jesus or didn't the Bible say that? He didn't need anybody to tell him what was in the heart of man. He already knew what was there. Well, we have one last woe. Look at verse 29. We're going to read all the way to verse 36. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you all these things shall come upon this generation. Now the eighth woe of the passage is the woe of deceitful devotion. Now the Pharisees look back to their heroes of the past, that was the prophets, and they said, we are just like them. And I'm sure there were times that they gave their long devotionals about how great the prophets were. They would come to the tombs of the righteous and they would lay their wreaths on them or who knows, maybe they laid their rocks on them. So they would come to the tombs of the righteous and they would do that and they would make their speeches and talk about how great that the prophets were. And in those days, they did make monuments to the prophets. And it reminds me of uh, like government officials do today. On President's Day, they'll come and they'll give their speeches or when a president dies, they'll do their speeches and... They'll have their parades and all of that. There's lots of talk about how great our forefathers were, founding fathers. And the, the politicians who make those speeches act as if they're living in the same integrity as the founding fathers. And they don't really have the integrity of one of the fingernails of the founding fathers. Now, by the way, I need to tell you this, or I wanted to tell you this, that back in January, or actually it was on January the 1st, New Year's Day, my wife and I went to Mount Rushmore. We have a picture of it here that I took while we were there. And we were standing, or I was standing in front of that magnificent monument that was chiseled into that stone. And when I left there, I, I was doing some research on that. And I was reading about uh, how they had polled some people, a great number of people, in fact, about how they thought that Mount Rushmore got there. How did that mountain like that get there with the heads of those presidents up there and you know what one of the chief answers to that question was erosion (laughs) these are the same people that believe in evolution i think but going back to our founders 
our, our founders signed their death warrants when they put their names on the Declaration of Independence. You know, I don't know of one politician today that would sign his name to anything other than what would make him popular or perhaps put money into his pocket. Yet they act like they're living in the integrity of the founding fathers. Well, that's the way the Pharisees did. Pharisees talked a good game about the prophets, but had they been living in the time of the prophets, then they would have killed the prophets just like their forefathers did. So Jesus says in verse 30, And say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Now, how did Jesus know that they would treat prophets just like their forefathers did? How did he know that? Well, you didn't actually have to be divine to figure this one out because they were doing the very same thing their forefathers did. They claimed to have the same self-righteous attitudes that they had, and yet what they did was to defy the message that Jesus brought to them, which was exactly the same thing that the old prophets had said to them. And in two days, he would be dead for preaching the same things that the prophets taught. Now, verse number 32 is an allusion to that. He says, fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. I'm going to deal quite a bit with that verse next week. But fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. And what that is, is Jesus' invitation for them to come and do what they were about to do. Their forefathers killed the prophets, and so would they. And Jesus went on to say, after I'm gone, I'm going to send you more prophets, and you'll do the same to them. You'll scourge them in your synagogues, and you will persecute them wherever they go. And read the book of Acts and see if that's not what happened. It's exactly what happened to the apostles, and you'll read there in the seventh chapter how that Stephen was stoned for preaching a message that the prophets preached. So they weren't any different at all. In verse number 35, he says, The blood of the prophets are on you. And again, we'll talk more about that next week. Well, we're out of time, so let me just point out what he says in verse 33. He says, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Now, I want you to notice once again that Jesus is not bashful about preaching hell. He never said, Well, you know... That's a subject that we don't talk about around here. It's just too negative for us. Let's try to be more upbeat about things. Let's not mention that. That's what Osteen says. Hell, sin, no, we don't talk about that around here. People already feel too bad about themselves already. And so the lying false teacher assures you that everything will be fine. And he says, you think positively. You're going to have a great day. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. And they never tell you about the hell that is the place that you're going to go to. They've told you lies. Well, Jesus has a word for those preachers. He says they are serpents. They're a generation of vipers. And those are his words, not mine. I can just point to Jesus and say, that's what he said. That's what he said. Why does he allude to serpents? Let me give you one more scripture. Revelation 12, 9 and 10. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Jesus calls them serpents because they're just like their father, the devil. 
That's not too nice. Not too nice. But Jesus had no compunction for speaking harshly about false teachers. And we are so concerned that we are nice. Oh, yes, all these people out here that are teaching all these different things, let's be just kind and gentle. We're all going to the same place, aren't we? I'm not going where they are. I don't know about you. I'm not going where they're going. And so Jesus tells us to warn against them. Well, let me close by saying this. Uh, We had a banner outside the church that said, Church Without Smoke and Mirrors. And when we first put that up, there was a lady that emailed me, and she was very upset about it. And she said, I hope that you're not denigrating this wonderful part of our worship of using smoke of incense. And I had never even thought of that when Brian made that banner and put it up. I never thought of that. But now that she brought it up, that's a great example for what we're teaching here. Because people have all these externals of their religion, all these things that they do that they think, you know, this shows that we are close to God and we're holy and we're like him, and they know nothing at all in their heart about loving God. Smoke and incense. And that's where their devotion is. Things like that, and not to the God Almighty of this universe. Well, they don't know anything about God. And what Jesus says here is, Woe to those who shut up salvation from poor souls that need to be saved. And woe to those who practice their religion in order to gain riches. And woe to those who make corrupt converts. Woe to those who pardon their prevarication, their lies. Woe to those that have petty priorities and don't concentrate on the weightier matters of the things of God. Woe to those who practice extortion and excess. Woe to those who have hypocritical hearts. And woe to those who have a pretense. They, they, have a, they are deceitful in their devotion. They pretend that they're worshiping God, but they're nothing like God. God sees through all of that. And it's time that we did too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the message that you've given us from your word. Most of all, Lord, we want to dedicate ourselves to you, and we want to have a religion that is true. We want to have a real heartfelt religion. We want to put the things that are important first in our lives, and, of course, that's always going to be you. Your scripture says to do everything that we do to the glory of God, and that's what we want to do. Help us to be that kind of a church. I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to some soul here today that has been depending upon themselves and they're living a hypocritical life and they think that if they just do some good things that in the end everything will be all right. Well, these scriptures very clearly show us that those who did the very best that they could to be good, trying to keep all the laws that they possibly could, yet if the heart is not right, it matters nothing at all. Lord, I pray that you would change their hearts today. And as Christians, again, I pray, Lord, you draw us close to you. May we dedicate ourselves wholly to you. May we live the faith that we claim to profess. Help us to do it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275. Or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, 
you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.